Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. My slides to come up. There they are. Uh, now, I was—I uh, just thought I'd share with you a tweet that I put out um, a few days ago. Uh, how can we build a democracy that's more supportive of equality? Find out next Monday at Communities in Control conference at Mooney Valley uh, next Monday morning. So my friend and fellow blogger Ken Parrish tweeted back. Put the housekeeping on number seven in the third race at long odds and then do a fine cotton conspiracy on behalf of the undeserving poor and broadcaster tip on Facebook. Well, I'm probably going to disappoint you. Uh, anyway, this is what we think of as where democracy has got to in the West. It's a, uh, a pretty, pretty pass. Um, and uh, the, the smart money, if you like, we... Uh, uh, it, it always seems very serious if we are to explain all this in terms of the, um, the material conditions of life and three uh, potential explanations. I don't want to say that they're... Well, let's have a look at them. The recession, uh, austerity, particularly uh, severe in the United Kingdom, and inequality, uh, the growth of inequality particularly severe, as you can see, in the United States. That's a growth in the Gini coefficient. I won't explain that to you. I have to explain it to myself. Um, but you can see that up is bad. That is, if you think equality is inequality is a bad thing. It started at uh, uh, a bit, uh, a bit um, above 34 and has gone up to 44. Really, really quite a remarkable state of affairs. And the result, <coughs> or is it the result, uh, certainly, a, uh, certainly something else that has been happening is uh, at the same time is that uh, the degree of polarisation uh, between the two main sides of politics over there has really gone through the roof. The, the, uh, that diagram is quite an interesting one. <coughs> Their political system requires a degree of compromise between parties in the Congress. And as you can see from that diagram, that is becoming harder and harder to bring about. Some extraordinary facts about polarisation in the United States is that in the 1990s, one-fifth of US uh, partisans, that is people who identify with, one, with either Republican or Democrat, Regard that regarded their opponents very unfavourably. Uh, today, two-thirds uh, are desperately opposed to their opponents and uh, two... Uh, sorry, two-fifths. And two-fifths are uncomfortable with a politically mixed marriage. Uh, amazing. And um, at least, uh, at least um, race and sexual orientation now takes a back seat to whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Is that an extraordinary thing to happen in a democracy? Uh, that's the level of distrust. Incredibly high uh, <coughs> until, uh, well, until before Watergate, as you can see. 
uh, but Watergate uh, plays a pretty important role in America and, uh, and it's pretty much rock bottom. Um, and, here, and in Australia, <coughs> excuse me, in Australia there is not that much difference. I know that uh, all the marketing hype is how different the two parties are, but partly because of compulsory voting. Uh, our parties tend to think a lot about the centre of politics and spend a lot of their time trying to grab it in various ways, and yet exactly the same things are going on. Uh, there is increasing uh, policy, there is increasing lack of, uh, of, of coherence in the centre, increasing inability to build coalitions in the centre. And distrust has been going in exactly the same direction as the United States and the United Kingdom and most Western countries. Um, so here's the thing. We think of uh, Donald Trump and Brexit as the great, um, the great signs of... The, the great earthquake, if you like, that suddenly woke a lot of people up to the fact that things are pretty sick in our democracy. Well, here's somebody to think about. <laughs> uh, because I would put it to you that just as <coughs> Australia led the world in neoliberal reform, for instance, that was back in the days when it was... Um, well, we, we pioneered a kind of neoliberal reform that also involved rebuilding the safety net um, under the Whitlam and Hawke Keating governments. Uh, and just as we led the world there, we led the world... We, we were three years ahead of Brexit and Trump. And I mean, what I mean by that is that if you think of the... Sing the singular achievement of the parliament that we elected in 2013, it was to abolish carbon pricing. And carbon pricing was a difficult political uh, consensus that had been reached over the previous 15 years. And it had the support of the consciences of about 80, maybe 90% of our parliamentarians. I will repeat that. 80 or 90% of our parliamentarians knew that carbon pricing was in the national interest. And our political system abolished carbon pricing. Carbon pricing, if it was still in existence today, would mean that our budget deficit was $10 billion a year less. That's the degree of self-vandalism. That's the degree to which the elites of Australia humiliated themselves in the Parliament of 2013. And this is a nice cartoon by Michael Lunig. <laughs> a certain amount of low-key Australian celebration there. Um, but it made no difference. Uh, we still ha are making no progress on that matter. And why am I telling you this? Well, here's a, here's a puzzle. Because that's, a, uh, that's incomes 
uh, household incomes over the period from 2000. And as you can see, there was a huge deterioration in those things in 2008 in the United Kingdom and the United States, these places that are supposed to be the, the beacon of crumbling democracy, um, but not here. Uh, got a bit sick for a while, but not here. Uh, we didn't have a recession. Now, we've heard a lot about inequality, and on one measure, inequality has risen, and that measure is the uh, amount of money going to the top 1%. We're not doing very well on that, um, on that score. Uh, on most other measures of equality, we're doing relatively well. This is a, this is a, a chart from ACOS, <coughs> which is uh, uh, taken from the OECD. Look at those numbers. They, they're, quite, they're much lower than the American ones. They go from 30 a long time, well, yes, a long time ago, up to 34. Uh, but if you extend the graph and you look at it from 2008, uh, it's basically kind of flatlining, or I, I wouldn't want to argue it's trending down. This is the Gini coefficient, by the way, which is a very summary measure of everyone and how, uh, dis how disparate the earnings are. Uh, but anyway, let's just call it flatlining. So we don't have the explanation <coughs> of a recession, of austerity, uh, uh, or if you want to call what we've had austerity, it's incredibly mild compared with uh, what has been happening in the Northern Territory. Sorry, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, <coughs> so, um, so I want to propose to you a very different explanation for what's happening in our democracy. I don't want to suggest to you that the, there's nothing in the material explanation, but I do want to suggest to you that there's a lot more and we, we should be really thinking about it. And um, I want to get you to imagine you are an evolving human being on the African savanna. And you're, uh, there are all sorts of parts of our makeup that protect us on the African savanna, and one of them is that we don't we get disgusted by certain types of food that might be bad. We like sugar, we like fat, we like salt. And take that community and optimise for profit in food manufacture and sale, and that's what you get. And I want to suggest to you that we live in a fast food culture, that this process of optimising, optimising around things that are in many ways good about us, things that helped us in an earlier age, but when you optimise them sufficiently single-mindedly, they turn toxic. I want to suggest to you that that's our culture. In in vast number of dimensions. And of course, politics is, an ex is where I'm heading. And of course, we also hear that it's the internet, that the internet has done these things to us. And the internet has certainly intensified these things. But I'll just draw a, uh, I'll just put a, a sort of a screen over those things where the internet revved up activity but didn't 
uh, but, but many of those things, uh, well, certainly the first uh, couple didn't rely on the internet by any means. Uh, and here's a pre-internet fact that I think is just huge. Our political system has been sucked more or less entirely into our entertainment system. And our entertainment system isn't, isn't what it used to be. Um, <clears throat> some of you may have heard of Tristan Harris who worked at Google and made a presentation to Google in 2013 about how Google was optimising the, hacking the human brain to try and maximise advertising. Um, that's not all bad, of course. It, it focuses people on trying to get you what you want, just as McDonald's and KFC are focused on that. And in the end, it poisons you. Uh, and so um, we have a fast food culture. Welcome the equivalent in politics. Um, we are immersed in politics as culture war. Uh, you more or less can't get anywhere in a campaign um, if you're not demonising your opponents uh, and saying how great you are. That's the formula. Um, and when we think about democracy, we are often uh, sucked into an idea what, which I call magic sentimentalism. And here's how it works. You, you, you know the disappearing lady inside the box. Now you see him, now you don't. That's done with the expression, we the people. We're the good guys, aren't we? And it's those politicians who are always misleading us. Um, trouble is, we vote for the politicians and they're misleading us because, in the words of Bernard Woolley in Yes Minister, when, Hacker's, uh, when Prime Minister Hacker says to Bernard, um, it seems that the civil service just exists to prevent politicians implementing the sacred promises they've made to the people, Bernard says, well, somebody has to. And so if you, so, so we the people, we feature as the good guys and then we disappear um, <coughs> and then we appear again. And think of the, uh, think of the uh, Republican debate. Uh, remember there was a very strong line of logic and I'm not trying to argue a particular position here, I'm just thinking of the underlying logic. Uh, remember how we wanted to elect our president. That was how the Republican cause was derailed. The logic went like this. <clears throat> We're sick of politicians. We don't want politicians to appoint a president. We'll take that into our own hands, thank you very much. We'll elect the president. What do you think that would give you, given all the other people you've elected are politicians? Um, and there's a diagram, you know, this argument by diagram, and I won't explain the diagram to you, but it explains how we have an 18th century technology which is voting on paper and now we have the technology, have direct democracy, and then we'll fix up everything. I don't think we will. And I had a, an interesting debate with Joe Trippi, who's a friend of mine, a, a really one of the great um, Democrat 
political campaign strategist in America. And he was the guy who, he, he grew up in what became Silicon Valley, and he was the guy who brought the internet to politics, the first guy to really crack the code with the Howard Dean campaign. If anyone's interested, I can tell you some, an amazing story about that, but I can't, don't have time to tell you now. And in 2008, in a very brilliantly titled book, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, he argued that everything was going to get... The people were coming, and they were coming via the internet. So in 2008, this guy turned up, and, of course, one of the ideas that he had was to hold a policy brainstorming on the internet. So in the, the, the world is plunging into the greatest recession it has seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s, and there was a policy brainstorming session which nobody, none of you, I expect almost none of you, have ever heard of. But there it was in, Ju in June or July 2009, and everybody got to vote, anyone who wanted to vote, and they would argue out their case online, and they could vote other people's ideas up and down, and what do you think was the f uh, came first? To legalise marijuana. And what do you think came second? Now, we're really... Because second, maybe something really important turned up as far as the second... Uh, the, se the thing that came second. Now, the third one, I have to admit addressed a particularly American problem, which, of course, as you know, is alien abduction. <laughs> so keep that in mind when we're talking about we the people. I want to take you through some very simple ideas about democracy by an economist and political philosopher, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, another amazing fellow. You, some of you may be familiar with him giving us the term creative destruction about innovation, but I'm not talking about that at the moment. What I like about these ideas is that they're very simple. Uh, I sort of only trust simple ideas, especially in an area like this. Collectives act almost exclusively by accepting leadership. Think of the local football club. There are leaders in the local football club. I'm not really talking about the people on the field, I'm talking about the club itself. There is a president, there is a secretary, there is a treasurer <laughs> and so on. And one of the things that we can think about here is that, um, is, is that we're in unique times. So Schumpeter's idea is that democracy is not the rule of the people, it is the competition between the ruling, a, a, a competition within the ruling elite for the consent of the governed. His idea is that there is a middle class, if you like, a respectable middle class with different ideologies who will compete for the consent of the governed. So his idea of democracy is that it is only possible where a strong elite is dedicated to public service and the rule of law. And here's the thing. <coughs> Our guys have given up. So this is the Daily Mail owned by good self-respecting capitalists who rely on the rule of law to hang on to all their money. And that's the headline when 
the unanimous decision of the High Court of the United Kingdom disagrees with their campaign for Brexit. The same famous terms used, I don't know whether they knew this, by Stalin in the Stalinist purges. Here's the Daily Telegraph in Australia and this was the execution of two brown-skinned Australians in Indonesia. How terrible it was. But this is power without responsibility because five years previously they'd gloated about how they were going to be executed. That's power without responsibility. That's the class that Schumpeter put his hopes in to keep democracy functioning. So can we do without responsible class leadership? We're going to have to find out because they've pulled the plug out from us. We cannot do... So what I take from Schumpeter's basic idea that collectives need leadership is that we do need a cognitive elite. We do need people who make it their business to understand about things and try to put them right. Because otherwise we are simply in chaos and we might be able to do with the, the chaos office, the, the officer for minimising chaos or whatever uh, they were called. Um, the second idea is that our, consider a person who's paying too much rent or is worried about how much their housing is costing them. There is a private realm and a public realm. I am not telling you that the private realm is more important than the public realm, but they're very, very different. In the private realm, we go through the paper, we look where, well, I could live a bit further out. That would involve these costs in terms of my time and petrol money and so on. Uh, and uh, I'd have to get up earlier. So we work things out in a very pragmatic way and in a way that we have experience with every day. If I have to vote for a party and I think my housing is too expensive, do I vote for a rental subsidy? Do I vote for rent control? Do I vote for or against negative gearing? We, uh, it's very hard to know. I can't give you very good answers to those questions. Economists got some pretty strong hunches in some areas and not much idea in other, in other areas. So thinking about how we vote is a much more abstract business. And here's the thing, none of us have an incentive to vote for private benefit because the chances of changing the outcome are infinitesimal. So why do we vote? We vote for expressive reasons. Our emotions um, make us, bind us to the idea of voting in the same way that emotions bound together uh, communities. And that, of course, means that politics carries very strong emotional messages uh, and we need to attend to the balance of emotions. Uh, a point made recently by Martha, uh, philosopher Martha Nussbaum 
uh, and she makes the point rather intriguingly via a discussion of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. I'll let you look that up because it's fun uh, and it's easy. You can actually get the whole chapter on the net. Anyway, she talks about two different kinds of emotions. Emotions inspiring worthy collective projects, requiring effort and sacrifice, and emotions of protecting the fragile self by denigrating and subordinating others. The, the no, no prizes for guessing which of these two emotions travels most easily in our current political culture. Here's Abraham Lincoln. Um, he was the politician par excellence of the first kind of emotion. Here's Winston Churchill, uh, a good version of the second emotion or at least the fight, uh, the, the emotions for fight story. Um, and here's somebody else uh, who used emotion as well. So I'm going to give the one type of emotion a feminine uh, colour there, colour of the suffragettes, purple, uh, love and care and fear and fight. There's Winston and fear and hate, somebody else. Uh, and then I'm going to talk to you about what happened in the Austrian election. In the Austrian election, a party called Meiner Stimme Gilt, which is interested in uh, some ideas that I'll put to you in a minute, uh, part of its methodology was to survey in a scientific way a representative sample of Austrian citizens and, asked, and gave, they gave them the 26 portfolios of government and they asked them to say which are the most of all these portfolios, which is the most important for your politicians to focus on over the next four years when you vote them into the parliament or the congress or whatever they call them in Austrian. I really should know, shouldn't I? But I don't. Um, and guess what came first? If you can read that, you'll also need to know German. Uh, they're cool names. Uh, anyway, Bildung. Anyone, I, I know enough German, which is about uh, almost nothing, to know what Bildung might be. It came first, it was education. And what came fourth was Integration, yes, you can probably guess that one too. Immigration. And now I have to admit that they came quite close in, in a numerical sense, but in education came first. What do you think the election was about? It certainly wasn't about education because you can't get into the papers talking about education. So the election was about immigration. And we all got into our corners and we all... And, and there, there was the usual political war, which was a... Who could misrepresent their opponents more egregiously? Although in that case, perhaps it wasn't misrepresentation. I don't know. Um, so another little test for you. Who do you think said this? Because this was on a famous day in Australian political history. It was quite a joy to hold the little kids' hands and watch them smile. Any ideas? That was the first quote that came out of the children overboard scandal. 
And that was the second quote. That's what we remember. And those are two emotional messages going into our political system, one in order to be wiped out by the other. Uh, I think there are a whole lot of issues here and in other countries which are stuck. They're stuck for the fact that they're difficult, that they're abstract, that they are capable of being stopped by highly emotive one-liners. Uh, and our democracy is stuck on all of them, although it is making some progress, more slowly than one might hope in some of the areas. So, um, if, we, if we assume that we need small groups of people who are representative of us, there are two ways to do that. Um, one is elections. Can anyone think of another way to represent the people in small groups? We actually do it in our society right now. Jury duty, exactly. We can represent them by sortition or by random selection. And one of the important things of random selection is that if you select people at random, certainly for a small group like a jury of 12, you will want to get a large consensus, if not unanimous, then um, 10, 9, 10 out of 12 at least, to be confident that you have the view that this isn't a statistical artefact. So here are two ways of representing the people. And let me give you some sort of quite shocking facts. Um, election is a boutique idea that sort of arose, well, it, it uh, happened in a very corrupt way in the parliaments of Europe, rotten boroughs and so on, and then gradually got cleansed through the 19th century. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of England. Uh, but in the 18th century, you had the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and one of the main things they all agreed on was that they certainly didn't want democracy. And Aristotle and Montesquieu had said that elections were aristocratical. In other words, they're a form of merit selection. And so they went with that idea. And also there were property franchises and all kinds of things. Uh, but selection by lot had, of course, existed in Athens. Uh, and most of the government was run by the boule, which was 500 people selected by lot. They were the guys who ran the government. There was a, an assembly, the Ecclesia, which was a which was six thousand, had room for 6,000 people to turn up and met once a month, I think. But selection by lot was preserved, uh, has a much older lineage, and it was preserved through the, um, through the Renaissance in Venice, Florence, and so on. Um, and here are some different, here are some different um, characteristics of representation by election. Uh, aristocracy reformed, it is aristocratic, as I've said. I won't, uh, it's, co it's competitive. This is a really big deal and, and a sort of a logical fact that I came upon, which really, uh, as I said to you earlier, I'm, when I run into a simple fact, I really listen hard. And it is that you don't get to 
be a politician under a, an electoral system without beating another politician. That is what you have to do. And once you've won and you go into the chamber, you go and fight the other side. That's all you do as a politician. So is it that surprising that we've got our far, that our this particular kind of fast food culture has got us so polarised, so wound up, so overwhelmed with the evil and stupidity of people we disagree with? Uh, and by contrast, this method is. Uh, much more powerfully, and I would use the word jealously, democratic. The Athenians ran the only jealous democracy the world has ever seen, and what I mean by that is that it was run in the teeth of oligarchy. They understood their democracy to be something which was designed to be resilient against oligarchs. And it's very difficult to drive corruption and power when people are chosen at random. Think about that. People's careers cannot be, people's political careers cannot be hacked by the powerful. Uh, and here's this word uh, which I discovered, a, an ancient Greek word, isegoria. There are two words in Greek, ancient Greek, which one of them corresponds or is translated as freedom of speech. That word is parhesia. It in fact means it's closer to the meaning of speaking truth to power. We do not have the word esegoria. Esegoria doesn't mean freedom of speech, it means equality of speech. Uh, and one of the reasons people vote for Pauline Hanson is that they want to hear their way of speaking spoken and they don't want to have their speech policed by people. Uh, and so that's where we, uh, and so this idea of the equality of speech is very important, I think. So there is a movement to try to establish the idea of sortition or selection by lot as a means of participating in politics. And I will, I will talk to you a bit about what that looks like and the sorts of impacts that it has. Uh, the balance of a firstly, uh, people are incredibly enthusiastic when they come out of these things. About over 90% of people think they're good, having participated in them. About 85% of people think they're fantastically good. Um, the uh, the, the um, here are some here are some um, quotes. Again, we think of politics as activism. We think of it as inherently oppositional, as hostile, and yet it's ultimately got to be about cooperation and coming to common views. And that's the, that is what is presented in a jury. You're not there to win an argument. You're there to arrive at a conclusion with other people. And that has, its, that has tremendous power, particularly because it addresses the right part of the fast food menu, if you like. We evolved to cooperate in groups. Uh, we're incredibly good at that, better than pretty much any species. The other thing that happens is that when people go into these processes, their opinion of politicians rises because they see how difficult it is to do what politicians do. Their opinions of... Um, 
but bureaucrats rises strongly. There's one group for whom the opinion starts off low and falls further, the media. Something, you may not be able to read this, but something like 90, something like 80, yeah, some, over 90% of people who've been through this process say before they know the answer, what will be decided, that they will respect uh, they will respect the decision that is made. Think about Brexit. Think about Trump. Think about whether that is a situation that is that confronts our democracy. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll skip that. Um, I want to focus on how views change. Um, his deliberative vote polling on energy in Texas. One finding was that the people were uh, happy to invest for the future. Not only were they happy to invest for the future, pricing for poorer citizens went up as a consideration. Uh, the, and, and here's a diagram which was would you be willing to pay more for wind and solar energy, which rose from 52 to 84%. And the actual amount that people would be prepared to pay more for was actually not much. It was just enough to make a huge difference to the incentives in the energy system. Uh, a UK national health deliberation in 1998 there were substantial majorities before and after deliberation in favour of increased government spending, um, positive and protective attitudes towards the NHS, the National Health Service as an institution, increased through the deliberation. Those who agreed that government should pay for everyone's health care went from 58 to 75%. So I'm st I, I hope I'm conveying to you the idea that this is an environment in which people start to understand that we're in a community and that we have, and that everyone has to try and get on in that community. Um, uh, I'll leave that one aside. Uh, uh, this was uh, in Bulgaria. The, uh, uh, we went from a minority to a majority to close special gyp schools for gypsies. You can imagine how good those schools might be kind of Brown versus Board of Education in Bulgaria. Um, a quick travel through uh, Oregon. Uh, now, Oregon has citizens-initiated referendums, that great marvel of direct democracy, usually hijacked by wealthy people. What a surprise. Uh, and, uh, but a real chestnut for uh, citizens-initiated referenda uh, is mandatory sentencing. So there was a mandatory sentencing uh, referendum and it was supported by 70% of people in Oregon. I, uh, I could, it actually sounds quite a, like reasonable mandatory sentencing. Again, if somebody wants to ask me about it later, I'm happy to tell you what it was. And uh, there were 70% in favour. In Oregon, they now have a mechanism, since 2011, you, you, part of having a citizens initiated referendum is having a citizen's jury sit on the referendum question and provide public advice on, uh, to all people in Oregon before they vote. The citizen's jury, which we can presume thought 70, roughly 70% 70 in favour of 24 people, 
roughly 70% uh, in favour of these, this mandatory sentencing going in as they learnt more about it, swung away from it and ended up voting 21 to 3 against it. And that was enough not to swing the final vote between yes and no, but certainly to produce a large swing against the vote in favour. Um, that's, a, uh, that, that's an attempt to characterise some of the types of swings in the, in the literature. I won't go into that now. I want to just spend the, the conclusion giving you two, uh, saying two more things. The first is I want to suggest to you how we could actually build this into our constitution. And the, uh, but, but the second is to backtrack from that and say that I thought that was kind of one of the more important parts of what I was talking about a year or so ago. And I realised that, I mean, apart from anything else, getting something in our constitution is pretty hard work. We're not very good at it. Uh, but secondly, what it does is it ends up everybody's doing little citizen jury um, exercises and I want to argue the case for embracing sortition, embracing the idea of selection by lot as a form of activism and I'll say what I mean about that uh, in a minute. But my idea about how you, could, uh, how you could put this in our constitution is that we have a chamber chosen by sortition. A good number for that chamber is 227, that's the number of parliamentarians we have in the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the goal would be to have the House, uh, have those two houses and then also have a citizen's house with representation by lot. You could also have it replacing the Senate, but the Senate, but that makes, it makes it harder and the Senate does some pretty useful things. Um, and I would give this, this, uh, I would give this chamber powers like the House of Lords, which was to, which would be to delay legislation by a certain amount. Uh, and I would also give it a very sneaky power. And I had in mind the way in which we abolish carbon pricing. The power is this: that if the People's Chamber decides that abolishing carbon pricing is a bad idea by a supermajority of, say, 60 or 60% or two-thirds, it can impose a secret ballot on the other chambers. And I'm very confident that we would not have had carbon pricing passed through our parliament if that was the case. Um, but I want to talk about sortition as activism because I think this is a way that we can go out and grab this kind of politics in a much more active way. And the best example I can give you is in the United Kingdom. We have very good evidence that uh, if, you ha if you hold a poll, well, the polls are sort of all over the place on Brexit, but plenty of them are still around about 50-50. As you know, the vote was 52 in favour of Brexit, 48 against. We also know via two mechanisms, a deliberative poll in 2010 and a much more recent citizens' assembly, that if you, once people deliberate and understand more about this, there is a swing from about 50-50 to 60-40 against. I think it would be fantastically good politics for the 
anti-Brexit forces who are now fighting quite hard to raise about a million pounds and hold 10 citizens' juries simultaneously around the country and to demonstrate that fact to everyone else in the country. I think that would be pretty good media candy. Uh, I think it would get a lot of coverage and I think it would showcase a different way of doing things, a calmer way of doing things and so on. And there are a whole range of ways in which we could use sortition. Some people in this sector will have problems with ethics committees. When I was at the Centre for Social Innovation, I eventually asked people to give me a trigger warning whenever, when anyone said ethics committee. Um, uh, but ethics committees are very bizarre things which sit as bureaucrats over people who are trying to help things and adjudicate on their ethics and usually in all kinds of bizarre ways and what I suggested was that instead of having an ethics approval process, well we have one, it'd be a selection, just a random selection of the target group and we say we're planning to do this and they'd go, yeah. You go, well, is that all right with you? And they'd go, yeah. Um, so uh, I, I won't say any more about that. Uh, I will just put you, I, I will uh, put this to you. Uh, who knows what that picture is? I don't suppose you will. But that is the extraordinary event that happened on Christmas 1914 when the Germans and the uh, Allied troops... It's just unbelievable, really. Uh, stopped killing each other and started singing Christmas carols and giving each other gifts and were hounded back into their trenches. Um, so imagine if, we if you couldn't go to a war except with a vote, a, a strong vote of a citizen's chamber. Is that not fair? Imagine if during the, uh, during the Greek crisis or right now in Brexit, if there was a group of ordinary people who were tasked and paid to be part of this process, we would feel a lot calmer about it because we would feel less spun to. We would feel that people like us were in there trying to learn what they could learn. So, um, uh, so, so here's a list of things that a list of topics that might be worth um, a list of topics that that might be worth exploring as areas where your sector might consider sortition uh, and might consider taking the uh, taking the political fight the 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 political conversation to groups of ordinary people uh, from the community. I will leave it there. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.